Seems rather obvious who the MVP of this series is, doesn't it? Murphy has homered in five straight postseason games, tying the all-time record. Swing and a high fly ball. Well hit, right center. It's got a chance. It's near the wall. He did it! Another home run for Murphy! He hits it into the front row of the bleachers to the right of the 400-foot mark. This just in. An MLB notice. Let's see what it says. To the New York Mets, it says, You are off to the World Series to represent the National League because you are the National League Championship New York. Boy, that Jim Brewer is excited about the New York Mets, that's for sure. God bless Jim Brewer. If you're a Mets fan and you don't know that Jim Brewer is posting these amazing game recaps on his Facebook page, you have a treasure uh, waiting for you. Welcome to the Sportscasters today. Don is not here. Um, And I'll give you all a second to just process that. Don's not here. All right, he'll be back next week. Um, and I thought about what to do. Should I call Adam Lazarus, do a guest spot? And I probably would have done that if I would have known Don wasn't going to be here sooner. I didn't get get a lot of notice because Don was sick, but then he was getting better, and he thought he might come, and then he didn't. Uh, so I said, you know, just put three things together and... You can do it by yourself, and I've done that before, and I just, I gotta think that it's just, you guys are listening to that on the other end, and 30 seconds into it, you're just, you're looking for something else. I gotta think it's horrible. So we're just gonna skip three things today. I mean, we could talk about Don Mattingly being fired, or I guess saying that he won't return his uh, Dodgers manager. I don't know which way you look at it. Five seasons, he's gone. Obviously, the Mets are going to the World Series. We don't know who they're playing yet. And by the time you listen to this, um, you probably will know whether it's Texas or or Texas, Jesus, whether it's Toronto or Kansas City. And I thought about doing a bit where we would have the first lady come in and talk about the uh, Odom Kardashian thing. Uh, but that, that's got huge bomb potential. So we're just going to get to the interviews and we got good ones. Uh, really good ones. Uh, Katie Baker is going to join us in a second. Katie Baker spent a week in Buffalo, New York, and she went home and wrote beautiful words about it in for Grantland. And if you want to get on my good side, spend a week in Buffalo and write beautiful words about it in Grantland. Actually, that's probably a fail-safe way of being on the website or the podcast uh, write something on your website about how great buffalo is if i find it i will probably be asking you to be on which i guess is a good or a bad thing depending on how you look at it but in a second when, when i'm done with all this we'll, we'll get katie on 
and she'll talk to us about Buffalo. We'll do a book club update. I got some stuff I want to tell you about the best American sports writing 2015 and the chances that Wright Thompson is going to be on the podcast to talk about editing it. And then we have a really awesome, long interview with Jeff Perlman. Jeff Perlman is the author of Sweetness, uh, the winner of the first ever Sports Cup Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month, Book of the Year. Boy, that's a wordy award. Uh, and Jeff and I really just talked for like an hour. We recorded this at like 2 a.m. Eastern Time. He's in the West Coast, so it wasn't quite as early. And we just talk about stuff. It's really not about anything. He's not promoting anything right now. He's writing a book right now that's due at the end of the year that he he won't reveal the topic. Now, I've figured it out months ago, it seems now. Um, but that won't be revealed. One thing that is revealed is he, he signed a two-book deal, and the other book is about uh, the USFL. So he'll tell us a little bit about uh, why he decided to write a book about the USFL, and I tease him about how the worst nightmare for him is when it's time to do the research. Uh, Donald Trump will be president, and he will have to uh, tra- track him down. And then after Jeff, if anyone's still around listening, I'll do one last thing, and we'll get out of here. And then we'll be back next week with Eddie Trunk from that metal show. How cool is that? Uh, Eddie Trunk, Don Jameson, and, and Jim Florentine are coming to Buffalo and Syracuse uh, to do the touring version of that metal show. And uh, Eddie was kind enough to come on, do about 20 minutes with me about rock and roll and that metal show and the live show and things like that. So that's next week uh, with the return of Don. But for now, we'll take a break and we will come back with Katie Baker from Grantland. <laughs> All right, our next guest is from Pennington, New Jersey. It's actually named after Chad Pennington uh, and is a graduate of Yale University. She's been writing for Grantland for quite a while now, and she's making her seventh appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome. It's Katie Baker. How are you doing today, Katie? Hi, good, thanks. Good to talk to you. So, now I'm sure that spending a week in Buffalo is one of the best things that's happened to you in a long time. But I'm willing to admit that maybe it wasn't quite as great as hearing Mike Francesa and Bill Simmons drooling all over you during that interview <laughs> last night and about you and your all over you that sounded cruel. I didn't mean it like that. I mean I mean these two guys are just like Simmons is like, "Oh, Katie Banks, oh, she's the best. She's the best." And 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 Mike is like, "That's the best thing. The best thing anyone wrote about the whole thing. She wrote it. That was the best." Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even even before my name came up, I, it was like you know one of the great great days of my life to have Tampa. Bill Simmons <laughs> talking to Mike Francesa. Um, so we, my husband and I, paused. We were watching TV. We like paused the show. We had an alarm set on our phone, so we didn't <laughs> miss anything. Um, and then when that, when my name came up, like I, um, I honestly, like, <laughs> sort of like was having trouble breathing. <laughs> I was just so overwhelmed, and I, um, I'm eight months pregnant, and I was like worrying about whether I was 
depriving the baby of oxygen and um and you know just, just couldn't believe it and and then when when Mike Francesa you know who uh sort of wished me luck and Bill told him I'm expecting and he he wished the baby luck and everything and um you know we we joke jokingly call him the sports pope right. so um I basically consider my my unborn child to have been blessed by the pope himself so that's pretty exciting yeah, it doesn't get more. It doesn't get much better than that. I was, <laughs> I was listening to it on podcast maybe around five ish, maybe like an hour after they did it. The WFAM put like a podcast of it up, and uh, when I got when I got to that part, I was just thinking of you, thinking, "Oh my God, she's got to be so happy right now." So I was happy for. Yeah, that, that was a that was an all time moment. I wish I'm trying to figure out some way I can like you know, preserve the audio, like, I wish I could, like, frame the audio and put it on my wall or, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> have it projected on a screen, the, the the transcript, like, on in the in the nursery or something, but we'll, we'll have to figure something out. <laughs> so many, like, incredible little uh, revelations in there, too. Like, there's going to be a 30 for 30 about Mike and the Mad Dog. I like how Bill's like, are you trying to hurt me <laughs> when, <laughs> when he said that to him? So, I know the the thirty for thirty news is pretty major stuff, and um, it's hard to it's hard to rattle Bill, and he definitely that's the, that's the way to do it. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing was Mike talking about how he would do the Mike and the Mad Dog reunion, but he doesn't think anyone could afford him. What I think someone needs to tell him, and hopefully there's someone. Uh, young enough that they would trust close to them is they just need to do it on their own. They don't need yeah. it. They don't need anyone else. You know what I mean? They can do the uh, Anthony Cumia or Artie Lang or whoever else model completely on their own. They don't need. They don't need an FAN or anyone like that to afford them. They probably could do better without anyone else. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing Mike loves to always bring this up. It's kind of an inside joke in my house, but. You know, he, he's obviously been told by someone that the next iteration of all these things is, you know, for there to be like a like Francesca app and for it all to be, um, you know, kind of an a la carte um, model. So it was funny that that came up with Bill because he says it on the show all the time. You know, everything's going to be an app pretty soon. Um, but, you know, even if even if those guys obviously have proven that they that they can and, and should um, have their own shows. I think uh, I don't think I'm alone in saying that we wish they would, you know, have get together specials a little bit more often. Um, I remember a few years back. I think it was maybe during the Super Bowl. Um, they they did a segment together yeah, for like Rock. an hour or so, yeah. and it was honestly kind of emotional for me to listen to it. Just um, you know, it was like you know seeing your parents get back together or you know it was just it felt so familiar and um and they that you could tell they were both so happy and um you know maybe that won't work every day anymore but hopefully we'll get we'll get a little more crossover in the future well and again i thought bill put it perfectly you both got your time apart you got to prove everything you needed to prove in as individuals and and now it's time to come back but yeah anyway so about that other amazing uh, moment in your life, you spent a week in Buffalo. Let me ask you this: When was the last time you were here before that? It was my. It was my. I believe it was my first visit. I mean, unless I went, 
I might have gone like as a as a kid. Oh. I have a lot of family in upstate New York, so um, it's possible I was toted along to, to Niagara Falls or something. But no, it was my first time there, um, and I was there for about a little over a week. Um, so you know, I I got to I went and saw Frank Lloyd Wright house. I went to Chefs. I went to Sinatra's. I I went went to a couple games. Um, went up to Niagara Falls, so I tried to I tried to hit all the hit all the highlights. And um, I was also there when the kind of really crazy um, uh, press conference happened regarding the Patrick Kane uh, investigation. Oh yeah, that was um, crazy. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of I, I I sort of was deciding should I go to Sabres practice or should I go to this this press conference. Because um, it was kind of called abruptly, and so I thought, all right, well, you know, practice is practice, but let me go check out what what's going to happen here. And it, you know, that ended up being a, a really, um, you know, truly crazy day, a couple of days. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of all happening in Buffalo when I was there. How did Buffalo compare to what you perceived it would be in your head when you got here? Um. I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly what I like expected. Um, you know, there's a people always. I, I mentioned this in the article. People always kind of joke about the weather, but I knew that the time of year I was going wasn't exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful uh, here when you were here. The dark sure. days. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, it was nice. I stayed at the um, at the new Marriott Hotel. That's a part of the whole big right. Harbor Center development right mm-hmm. next to First Niagara Center. Um, and it had literally just opened, I think, three weeks before. So everything was brand new, and I just remember thinking, well, this will be a good, you know, from a sports writer perspective, we all love Marriott, and we all, um, you know, anytime you can stay somewhere where you're not, where it's not a pain to get to the rink is great. So, I mean, that was that was nice. And just that whole area, you could just, you know, you could see, kind of what they're envisioning. Um, so I, I forgot to put this in the article, but one of the funniest things I saw was um, I was kind of walking up to, toward downtown to go get lunch, and there was a guy who had who came out of the canal, and he was on, he was no shirt on, riding a bicycle, and off the back of the bicycle was, like, towing, a, like, a kayak. And I was like, am I in <laughs> Seattle or... San Francisco, or am I in Buffalo, New York? Um, so you know, there's there's a lot going on. I went to some good restaurants, um, and you know, in, and, oh, and I forgot to say, I went to a Bills Patriots game, which was awesome. Um, I had such a good time. I it was like they were trying to set a Guinness World Record for right. for being loud. And <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. I don't think they, yeah, it didn't work out. But the, the Patriots kind of foiled Spoiled them on that, that yeah. one. They, but but still, they sort of came back at the end, and people were just going crazy, and the tailgate scene was was really fun. So that was I was really glad that I that I kind of incorporated that into the trip. How are the Sabers? Did they treat you good? They did. They yeah. were great. Um, you know, it's um, every people were in good spirits, and um, Dan Bilesma, you know, is is easy to to talk to and work with and um you know there there's kind of a i think it's funny because some of the people who you know cover the team daily 
have kind of been recently going through all these, you know, national writers coming in and writing stories. And so I was another one of those, but, um, but, you know, they, they, it was, it was fun. They all, um, you know, like you just kind of forget how many new faces there are there. You, You know, everyone talks about Eichel, myself included, but then you've got Evander Kane who, in his own right, would have been kind of a, the big story of the of the you know new new look team, um, but he's almost become just like one of many. And uh, Ryan O'Reilly, you know, is there, and um, Ryan obviously the, the Robin Leonard, the goalie, is right. kind of on hiatus right now. Although um, he didn't, you know, he didn't look great. Little anyway, shaky, Katie. So. Little shaky there. I'm a little nervous about that part of the rebuild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, shaky. that was definitely a question mark even you know, before he got injured. But I don't know. His injury reminded me a little bit, you know, with with much less drama. But it kind of made me think of the Jets with Geno Smith in the sense of, oh no, we've lost this guy for quite some time. But it's like, is it? It may not be as huge of a loss as as it looks, you know, on paper. Um, and that's not to take anything away from him. And obviously it had nothing to do with the getting punched in the locker room or anything, but just from the sense of, um, you know, he hadn't really been, um, it, it didn't seem like he was going to really be the backbone of the team anyway. So, I mean, it does, you know, they have to figure out what they're going to do, but, um, but there, there's just a lot of pieces in place that weren't there last year. And just to hear some of the beat writers talk about, some of the rosters that were being iced at certain parts of last year, um, you know, when you had people you'd never heard of playing on like the second line, uh, things are have de- you know they now actually have they have lines they have <laughs> they have personnel and so and you know and and then obviously Eichel um, is someone who the fans and who the organization are just all so excited about. You know, it's a really interesting thing about it is last year. Um, last year here was such a it's such a bizarre thing that obviously I hope we never experience again. And there really was a line drawn down the middle of the sports media. And on one side of the sports media, uh, especially the talk radio part, I think, uh, mm-hmm. to a large degree, was sort of very much with the fans and behind the idea of, yeah, let's do this. Let's finish last. And then on the other side of that, there was many um, guys. Maybe maybe it just feels that they were more print guys. And certainly the captain of it was uh, Mike Harrington, who came on to this podcast and for 30 hours debated it with me um, very spiritedly. And uh, we get along great. And I love Mike. Um, what's really interesting to me so far is that the fans have not forgot who did not support the tank and man are they it's it's so weird because if you were on that other side the fans have not forgotten any time you write anything tweet anything about Eichel I'm starting to feel bad for these guys it's all yeah but you didn't even want him here you weren't you know and it's oh my god it's it's happening again it's happening again there's like there's going to be another war Media versus fans, and 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 the and, and the battle line this year isn't. Do you believe in the tank? It is. You didn't support the tank, so I can't. I can't support you anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, you have to credit Buffalo fans for being 
some of the most passionate fans um, in the league, truly. And um, they've it's been quite some time since they've had somewhere uh, constructive to, <laughs> to focus that energy. And I, I mean, obviously the the tank question was such a big one, you know, not just in Buffalo, but kind of um, on like a theoretical level around the league. And, and they were the they were the kind of the biggest example of it. Um, you know, I always felt that, you know, why would you not take advantage of the kind of tactical um, framework in which you're being forced to operate in this case? Um, you know, I think there was kind of two, um, there were two things going on that combined to create the situation. One of them was that the, the way the draft was set up, you if you were the worst team, you couldn't fall more than one place. So you'd be picking first or second, regardless of what happened. And then this past year, you happened to have two guys who were, you know, Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel, who were both considered, you know, generational, game-changing, franchise-moving players. So if you do the math, like, if you can finish last, you're getting one of them. You might not get the the one that is top of your list, or maybe you will. But um, so you know, I, I never faulted the Sabers for for going that direction, and um, it obviously creates some weird situations where you're you know you've got your home crowd cheering for a loss. And I remember, I think it was like Mike Weber uh, had some comments after one of the games where um, he took exception to that and. You know, I get it. If you're a player, that's an awkward situation, and you know, it's not personal. Um, yeah, it's not like they were said, tanking either. The players didn't. Yeah, do exactly. Anything, and you know? you know, the players, the players on the ice are they're competitive guys. Like this is in their bones. They're trying to win games. They're trying to score goals. It's just what drives them. Um, but you know, if the if if at the organizational level, they're gonna not put out. You know, they're gonna kind of put out teams that might not necessarily compete or if they're going to, you know, make trades like signing a guy who's injured so that, or trading for a guy who's injured so that they don't actually have to play him yet. I mean, to me, that's that's kind of intelligent, uh, you know, team positioning. So, you know, it, it, and the, the thing is, I mean, it's, it's not something that's going to come around. It, last year was such a dramatic example of it, and so I think people who were – you know, saying this is such a slippery slope, you know, you can't have teams, you can't have, fans don't want to root for losses, and it's like, well, that's, you know, hopefully that's not going to happen more than once every very infrequently. Um, and, I mean, even next year, the, the draft rules have now changed. So right, four, now right? If you finish, yeah, so now if you finish in last place, you could still Follow uh, pick fourth, which right. I think happened to the Knicks in the NBA. Um <laughs> But uh, or they finished second to last. But um, but yeah, I mean they're they're doing things to kind of drive away those incentives, and that's that's how it should be approached. Um, it shouldn't be you shouldn't be scolding the team or or scolding the fans who support the team's direction. Um, in, in my opinion, and obviously Mike is a is a very big proponent of of his point of view, and um, he's not afraid to voice it, and that's what makes Mike a, a really effective in his job is that he. He has his opinions and he shares them, and he really doesn't care what anyone thinks. And um, you know, I, I spent some time with him when I was in Buffalo, and he's, you know, he's. I, I know he's a. Uh, he likes to get into it with the fans online and stuff, but he's, he's a good guy, and 
um, you know, it's nice to have some debate going on, uh, you know, in all these in all these realms. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for him, and he stood his ground. And 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 like I said, he was he came on here, and we we debated very hard for half an hour. And at the end, I was like, "Hey, th- thanks for coming, Mike." He's like, "Oh, no problem, Steve." You know, so I have a lot of yeah. I have a lot of respect for him for that. And I told you how yeah. much I love the article. I want to ask you one thing though. Um, you wrote in here that this is a quote: "Thanks in part to geography, Sabres fans have grown particularly." Uh, enamored of mcdavid over the years many of them uh making the drive down to Erie, blah, blah blah why do why do you think that why, why is that a perception that um that we were so enamored ina- for uh um mcdavid obviously murray was i i wouldn't i absolutely he was but i mean we, as a fan base we created a word called mcichael i i never got this feeling, and it feels like a lot of people outside of here um, got that impression, and now also um, are having fun. Sort of, not you're not doing this, but uh, a lot of people on Twitter have even trolled me, saying, "Oh, you guys are such phonies! You lost the lottery, and now you're trying to pretend like you wanted Eichel all along." Um, where, where does well, this, where, think, where did that come? From? Where think, did that come from? I mean, so I don't know if it got taken out. I mean, I definitely mentioned the Mick phenomenon um in the piece yeah yeah you did mention that um, yep but but no i mean you're right i mean i i do think it was i think people had a healthy understanding of the fact that there were this was kind of a two-headed monster and it wasn't um and it wasn't like people were against eichel i think people were excited for the opportunity to get either of those guys um i just think the the way the two guys were positioned, um, not only in Buffalo, but kind of league-wide, was that most people felt that Connor would be the, the first pick, you know, if, if if someone could have the freedom to make that choice and that Eichel would be number two. So, um, And then I, I just meant in that sense that, you know, and Eichel wasn't too far away. I'm sure there's plenty of people who traveled and watched watched him play college games. And he also um, played here last year. People forget. Because that, that's the other thing people always say is like, oh, well, the Sabres brought Erie in. Well, okay, but Boston University wasn't going to come. And by the way, Eichel played here in the Prospects game and packed the building because people wanted to watch him as well. So, I was going to say, well, the, uh, the he played in the, the all, that All-American Prospects yeah. game, which is fake. I actually went to again this year, um, but unfortunately Austin Matthews was in Switzerland. Was in yeah. Switzerland, so <laughs> couldn't couldn't see next year's guy. But um, but no, I mean I, I think in the sense I've gotten, and you know you never know who's saying what, but there there were a lot of people that were genuinely excited either way, or people who say I wanted to go more, and you know it's hard it's hard to ever parse you know who. Yeah, I'm sure if McDavid had been sele- had been selected, you know, no one would be saying, "Oh, I'm bummed. I wanted Eichel." No, <laughs> but, no and I'm not um, even saying that at all either. Yeah, no, yeah. I know, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I just think it was such a unique situation, and I, there really were two guys who were so far above the rest. Um, and I do, I just, I think I just remember, um, you know, some of those Erie Otters games where you, where the, you would see the, the national coverage of of the, you know. And it wasn't just Buffalo fans. You know, you had Toronto fans too, kind of taking an interest in in this guy. And you had 
NHL fans in general who were making the trips to go to Erie Otters games. And so, you know, that wasn't meant to say that they, that everyone was truly um, upset about Eichel at all, because that's definitely not the sense you get. Tim Murray, on the other hand, <laughs> it's kind of amazing to go back and, and read his reaction. I mean, I, I tend to think that he was reacting less to Jack Eichel than he was to just being super fed up with the fact that once again Edmonton is going to be drawing first overall, <laughs> and I think he just kind of let his uh, his reaction to that get the better of him. Yeah, that that could be very true, and because he and maybe if you know you look at the GM of the team as being the the face, like a representative of the fan base, I could see why you think that. But if anyone knows anything about Buffalo, they should know that. Everyone here knew we were not winning the lottery. That's why. <laughs> that's that's why true. finishing thirty was so important to everyone, because we knew we were not winning the lottery, and we had an appreciation for what a great player Eichel was. And you know, as a sidebar, we want to be considered. And you mentioned uh, some of the facts that we'll point out. The 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 preeminent hockey city in the United States of America and Kane's off-ice problems aside, there's a lot of pride that potentially the best American-born hockey player of all time was born here and the idea that the next best American hockey player of all time might play his career, the captain of the Olympic team kind of a thing, that was big here. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to say that we wouldn't have taken McDavid overall because we wouldn't have had to pick Murray what would have, and obviously Murray would have picked McDavid. And I'm not even saying that one person would have grown. There would have been a celebration for McDavid. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying it's just this weird perception that's getting out there that, like, we we we, we went and cried when we, when we lost the lottery, and like, but it just wasn't that way. But um, anyway, the sportscasters are here finishing up with Katie Baker. She's nice enough. To make some time. She has a great piece. It's called The Sun is Rising in Buffalo. It's on Grantland.com. You can find it there. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Katie Bakes. Just a couple real quick things before I let you go. Uh, the season has started. Have you have you got a chance to watch any of the three-on-three in a regular season game? Um, yeah, so what was that... There was that first game. Philly and Tampa? Philly and Tampa? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of – it's funny because during um, preseason, Buffalo, I think when they played Ottawa, in a bunch of their games they they did, you know, regardless of the score of the game, they they did a three-on-three. Right, they're kind of piloting them. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was – I think it was over in like 10 seconds and, uh, you know – there was actually an email that kind of went around uh, the Professional Hockey Writers Association of, of people saying, um, have people seen these three-on-threes? How have they been going? You know, just trying to get a sense of how they've looked around the league. And uh, the consensus was a lot of these were were not really, they were kind of over before they began. And it made me wonder if this was really going to be all it was cracked up to be or if you were just kind of, setting the stage for kind of a wacky, you know, up-ice rush, you know, odd man rush, and and it wouldn't really be this kind of awesome tactical um, back and forth that you envisioned. But then 
since the regular season started, there's been some really fun ones, and I know it's probably maybe just the increased level of competition and the, yeah. um, you know, now they matter a little bit more. People, I'm sure, also have had more time to practice them, but it's it. I, I was someone who, um, not that I wasn't in favor of it. I, I didn't. I didn't really feel that strongly either way, but I, I, I sort of had my doubts and. So far, it's been it's been fun. I mean, you just think about what it'll be like late in the season when when these points really start to um, appear like they matter more. Not like they will matter more than they do right now, but you know, just those you know, two teams fighting for a right. spot or something like that. You're going to get some interesting interesting outcomes. Yeah, if there's a game like in the last day of the season where a team needs one more point uh, to get into the playoff and it's three on three, that's going to be pretty pretty much that's going to be insane. And it's better than yeah. it's better than I think it's better than uh just kind of sitting through 5 minutes of coaches kind of accepting a shootout. It's a little harder yeah. to do that in 3 on 3. You know, I think especially the coaches who felt they had the edge in them, they kind of grind their heels in a little bit and you just kind of watch 5 minutes of nothing and Yeah, I, that's a good point. I don't know. But um do you have a cup pick? Oh man. I mean I don't know. Like it, it's hard because, like, like I, I would say, like you know, a team like Tampa Bay that came so close last year and has looked really good so far this year, and you know, they they just have every opportunity to get back there. But then, you know, you know how hard it is to get back there. Um, obviously, there's. I think I've sort of more been struck by um, by some teams that I thought would be a lot better than they have shown so far. Like, right. not that I thought Columbus was a cup pick but um i didn't really expect that they were gonna be so columbusy once again (laughs) um same with the la kings they've kind of been you know they haven't really excited too many people yet um so i don't know you know you can kind of the san jose you know you can maybe this is maybe this is finally the year that san jose can do something although now that couture is injured who knows but um but, you know, the the one year where they won't be hyped up will maybe be the year where where they'll have a good a good run. But no, I haven't I haven't really come up with a uh, a top dog or anything like that. Well, Katie, I'm glad that you got to have uh, such a great time in my city. Um, I'm a pretty passionate Buffalo guy, and I'm glad you got to spend some time here. And it sounds like you really enjoyed it, and you wrote a great article again. The sun is rising in Buffalo. It's on Grantland.com. And uh, probably if you live in Buffalo, you've seen it now because it's been everywhere. Uh, People are really proud that someone like Katie came here. And those are the words that followed. And um, at Katie Bakes on Twitter, uh, check out her other work on Grantland. And best of luck. In the next few weeks, we'll be uh, thinking about you. (laughs) And uh, hopefully... um, uh, much later in the season, when you're back at it, we can uh, we can talk again. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I'll be I'll be you know objectively cheering for for the Sabers' continued success. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you, Katie. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right, I want to thank Katie Baker for being on the podcast today. Katie from Grantland, I always love when Katie's on. Boy, Grantland, 
What is going to happen there? I have no idea. Seems like every day. I don't know if you guys follow James Andrew Miller, uh, the writer of the ESPN book. Uh, but he's written a few articles uh, for Variety, Variety Fair, I think, website, about just kind of what seems to be the fall of uh, Grantland. And uh, it's really bumming me out because every time we have a guest from Grantland, it's it's, it's an awesome guest. And uh, we got to know some of the people there, and they're great people. And I hope that ESPN doesn't just kind of run that into the ground just despite Bill Simmons. They have so many talented people there uh, doing great work. But um, thanks to Katie for being on the podcast, and thanks for saying nice things about Buffalo. Okay, book club update. So the book club book of the month uh, this year, as it always is this month, is the best American sports writing. Uh, 2015, last year, in 2014, Chris McDougall was the executive editor of, uh, of the book. And we did one of the more fantastic interviews in the history of the sportscasters together. And ironically, uh, we did it on an episode that Don wasn't in, sort of like today. I don't know where Don was that day, but I know that's one I did by myself. And uh, there was only one interview, the McDougal interview, and it was awesome. Well, I told you guys that I was going to try to get... Ray Thompson's not on Twitter. Uh, and I thought what I could do is I could go to Bill Hoffheimer, who helps us book... Mike Tirico, and see if he could tell me who could help us book Ray Thompson. And he told me uh, someone whose name escapes me or I'd share it. Uh, and that was about 10 days ago. And I've sent her three or four emails and she's not responding. So apparently she's one of these cool people. And there's so many of them out there who they don't write to say no, thank you, or I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Thompson doesn't want to do it or uh, anything. It's just uh, it's just dead air. But her dead air does give me permission to try to seek him out another way. Um, obviously, if she can't get back to me, then there's no reason I can't try to find a back door to Wright Thompson. Uh, so I'm going to keep trying and uh, we'll keep plugging this thing because we love the book. And because so many of our friends have pieces in it this year, like Tim Graham and Tommy Tomlinson and Katie Baker. Uh, and I forgot to met, talk to Katie and congratulate Katie about it uh, when she was just on. Um, I think it, I think it's Katie who's in there. I don't know. Um, but that's where we're at. We're nowhere. And what we're going to do now is take a break. And we have a long interview with Jeff Perlman. I hope you enjoy it. It very very much is like Jeff and I met at a bar and just sat down and talked for an hour while recording it. And if you stick along around long enough to hear that, the podcast will end uh, against my better instincts with myself and the first lady of the sportscasters breaking down the Lamar Odom, Khloe Kardashian saga. Uh, if you don't make it to that, I understand, and we'll see you next week with Eddie Trunk. Uh, but let's, for now, just take a break and come back uh, with Jeff Perlman.
All right, our next guest is the second most famous person from Mayopac, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Delaware. He was a writer for Sports Illustrated and has since went on to write books, great books like Sweetness, one of my all-time favorite sports books, and his most recent Showtime about the Los Angeles Lakers. But he's not on for books tonight. He's just on for his love of the podcast. He's making his sixth appearance tonight. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to Jeff Perlman. What's going, Jeff? Wait, so I'm the second most famous person from Pack. Yes. Are you saying Henry Winkler's mother is number one? Sour Shoes. That's number one. I don't know, man. What about Dave Fleming? What about Dave Fleming, former Seattle Mariner left? No, it's it's Sour Shoes. I mean... First of all, I'm not being uh, modest when I say this. I'm probably 15th on the list at best. I'm just saying. That's fine, but I'm still pushing for Sour Shoes at number one. All right, that's fine. I mean, the thing is, Dave Fleming was the man back in the day. But I would not you know, if you if Dave Fleming walked past 1,000 people now, 999, maybe 1,000, I probably would not recognize him. But he did win 17 games at the Seattle Mariners one year. I'm fascinated by Long Island because... So many people are from there, like, I'm not exactly sure where Opie is from in Long Island, but, like, he went to a high school where he is absolutely, like, the fifth most popular person from there, and he's the host of the... But you know Mayo Pack is not Long Island, right? Well, I know it's not exactly Long Island, but... No, it's not even close to Long Island. Well, it's north of Long Island. Yeah, it's significantly north of... I mean, it's uh, it's north of Westchester County. It's Putnam County. See, so you got to go way up. See, but I do know what you're saying, and I will tell you, my best friend, uh, one of my best friends, went to high school, Debbie Gibson on Long Island. So I feel like everybody, it is true, when you talk to people from Long Island, they generally have gotten to high school somebody famous. Yeah, I think what, I'm, what I just, and this is funny that you reacted this way, uh, because mm-hmm. everyone thinks that I live in upstate New York. And you live in Buffalo. And I, really I live western in western New York. New York, you know, but anything that's not in New York City is... Um, right. And to me, like anything that's, you know, not New York City, but you can get to by train in that area, it's Long Island to me, you know. Although I know it's not part of the island, it's north of it, but. That's pretty funny. Yeah, no, I'm not from Long Island. Yeah. I'm from the mean streets of Mayo Pack here. The mean streets of Mayo Pack, which is the inspiration of the name of the fantasy team that you and your, your son are, have, and how how's the team doing? People do want to know. And the mailbag Gators were five and one in first place, thanks to my son's expert maneuvering. Wow, five and one! Is he loving it or what? Are you guys loving it? You guys having fun or? Yeah, we're very much enjoying it. It actually is fun, and it's uh, he's he's nine. He just turned nine, and he's a big. He's kind of a sports fan, you know, big sports nut, much like I was as a kid. Very into eighties, anything eighties in the NFL. He's really into. So we have a lot of Earl Campbell and Billy Sims and Freeman McNeil discussions. It's really fun. Now, so then Billy Sims is his favorite OU running back of all time? Yeah, but I don't think he knows he went to OU, but he, <laughs> I will say, it was, again, last week was his birthday, and two of his gifts he was most excited about was I got him a, uh, well, his grandparents got him a Walter Payton jersey and a uh, Earl Campbell Houston Oilers jersey. Do you think it's really, do you think he thinks it's really cool that his dad wrote a book about Walter Payton? Like, do you think that means something to him yet? You know what's so funny? I just asked him this morning, I said, um, do you think it's, is it any different to you that I'm a writer as opposed to if I were like a, whatever, accountant or doctor? 
I'm not saying being a writer is any better. I was just wondering if it was any different because he's a sports fan. And he, uh, he said, yeah. He said, yeah, I think it's cool because you know a lot. So I thought, all right, that's good. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't know more if I were a doctor. But in this specific area, I guess, being a sports writer is good. And this is the yeah. area which he wants to pick the brain right now. You know what I mean? He's not really interested about, you know, what's connected to what. Medical devices. Right. He wants yeah, to, right. Right. He wants to know about... Uh, who was the Steve best McNeil. running back Billy from Sims. OU? Yeah, Billy Sims or Adrian Peterson or someone else. Yeah, yeah. it's actually it is. I will say it's uh, it's kind of a lovely thing. Like um, he's really into '80s football, and it, obviously, it's I mean, it's because his dad's into '80s football, I guess. And we, you know, I was did a lot of research during Sweetness and all that, and and so now when we have a break, I'm like, you want to just watch some '80s highlights? And we're like, yeah, and we'll watch you know the old NFL films and. There'll be Steve Barkowski and Ken O'Brien and Boomer Sison. He just he's decided that former Falcon running back Lynn Kane is his new favorite because uh, Lynn Kane had the best athlete he's ever seen. A little <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> that does sound fun. I will often uh, search out highlights of the 1987 Saints because that was my first Saints huh. team. So it's some, yeah. But I don't. It was so different then. Like I would literally. I remember my first year, my second year. As a fan of the team, I would wait for the ten-minute ticker. Like I would sit, oh, of course, you know, and wait, and that's how you. And then prime time, I guess, at the end of the night was how I finally got to see what happened in the game. Um, and uh, now that was that the team with. Um, are we talking Dalton Hilliard and Ruben Mays as the one-two running back punch right there? Yeah, that was the well, was the strike. It was the strikes shortened season, um, and. Uh, they actually uh, beat the Bears, who during the strike, their coach or their quarterback was Sean Payton at the time, which is oh, yeah, right. kind of that. a cool, kind of quirky yeah. thing. Um, yeah, but, I love that strike season. I love those strike games. I remember being a kid and loving the strike games. It's so hard for me to understand that strike because some players didn't strike, or, or they or, they, or they gave up on it. You know, it's just like this really weird thing I don't understand, and I wish I was. A, Wish I was around or older at the times. So I was six ish, seven, six or going on seven, depending. And um, I wish I could have known. That's such a weird thing. I was reading. Um, Adam Lazarus wrote a book about the Redskins, uh, about the eighty-seven yeah. Red, or not the eighty-seven, about the eighties Redskins. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what a strange locker room must have been in when you know Dexter Manley is like. I don't. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I don't care, but I gotta. I, I gotta get making these checks again. So, you know, you just he right. just bails on it. I mean, it's such a such a strange concept now, with how you know how hardcore the sports unions are. To imagine people just. Well, it was interesting. One thing that was really interesting about it is uh, sort of like you said with Manly. It was um, there was a lot of marquee guys. You know, like uh, I remember Tony Dorsett cross, and I think Danny White cross, and Freeman McNeil cross. Um, with the Jets, like there were a lot of really good players who crossed. So it wasn't just like when you return, you can marginalize the backup defensive lineman across. You know, it was it made it for some really awkward times because um, they had a lot of great players who who were now considered scabs. You, how long are you going to really hold a grudge against Tony Dorsett? You needed that guy, you know, next week against the Cardinals. It was a weird time, very strange. And it's really hard, I think, historically, I think people get frustrated too. Like how do you how do you rank those teams? Like if, if the eighty seven Saints, which is the case for the Saints, is one of the best teams in Saints history, how do you appropriately kind of gauge that? Because you know, the 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 team it's I mean, 
they were 12 and three um and you know they didn't win the division because somehow San Francisco is better of course always found a way to up, one up even a 12 and three team but um it's just they're, they're a hard team for people to uh to context con- conceptualize when you when you look back at it like because such a strange such a strange season so I think it's even weirder that I can tell you with some certainty that the Saints starting quarterback during the strike games was John Forkade. I don't know why I remember that. Yeah, and he actually he was, like, he was the starter. He stuck. They kept him. Yeah, he was the starter here in 1989, the first time I got to see them live. And uh, he and the Saints beat the Bills in the snow. And um, it, was a, it was a day that it was the day I learned it was going to be a long life for me as a Saints fan because I went with my dad who had season tickets with a bunch of his friends and um, I, I guess my dad for whatever reason didn't think I was actually going to cheer for the Saints but of course I went there to cheer for the Saints it was such a happy day uh, to be able to see them because they were so far away uh, back then uh, for them to be in the same city was so cool and um, about maybe halfway through my dad said you just can't sit by me anymore He's like, you got to go down a few rows, find a seat down there, um, and you sit by yourself. You're going to cheer for the Saints. I said, okay, that's fine. And um, so then the Saints are taking the, the victory formation. Now, Forcade is taking the victory formation, and um, I felt the first snowball hit the back of my head. And I was like, oh, man, oh, awesome. these people are mean. And then the second and the third, and I'm like, I'm going to tell my dad. And I looked, and it, of course, was my dad and his friends, so. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, I no protection that. there. They were the uh, they were the culprits. <laughs> so that's pretty sweet. You know, the Saints one year had. I know this isn't the topic of choice, but um, I wrote a blog post about this recently. The year they got Richard Todd as quarterback from the Jets. Richard Todd was maybe the worst quarterback in the NFL. And there, the three quarterbacks that year on the Saints were Richard Todd, Dave Wilson, and um, oh God, whose name I can't remember played for the Dolphins and. I don't think there's ever been a worse trio of quarterback in the NFL than what the Saints had. And throughout the 80s, before Bob, well, before Bob Yeager got there, there's this one crap he has been uh, quarterback after another. And that's the story of the franchise, and I think that's why people don't quite understand. Well, maybe people do understand. Just an added reason why we love Drew Brees so much, because, I mean, first of all, Archie Manning was a terrible quarterback for the Saints, and there's, he's not even... Not his fault, though. Maybe not, but I mean, his interception to touchdown ratio is. Yeah, right. I can't believe he was able to start for as long as he did. I, th- I think he, as a starter, maybe had one year that he didn't throw more interceptions than touchdown passes. Um, How many did he talent to work with, though? I mean, I know the lines are always terrible. I think he had Wes Chandler was his best receiver, was pretty good, and then he, he went to San Diego. I mean, yeah, not, not, not totally you know? his, his fault, obviously, not a, a story. Uh, part of the the franchise there, but I mean, probably the second best quarterback in Saints history is, if we're being honest, is Aaron Brooks. You know, and no, Archie Manning was a better quarterback there. Archie Manning had yeah. nothing to work with. You can't just go on stats with that. He was really like, if you saw the old footage of him, he just got the crap kicked out of him. You know, but I agree. I do think it's sad when Aaron Brooks is your second or third best all time quarterback. You got some problems. It's definitely one of the two of them. Definitely one of yes. the two. I mean, well, um, we got some good years from uh, Jim Everett. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, legit good years, like three or four. But yeah, 
I don't know if that's enough to make him the second best quarterback in franchise history, but he'd be another guy that have to be considered. And uh, Bobby Abar yeah, obviously would have to also. be con- considered as well. Yeah. So, so if Bobby, yeah, actually, I would put Abar. I might put Abar number number two. Abar's a really good quarterback for the Saints. Yeah, the only you know the the hard thing is he he really screwed them by holding out when he did, because that was another one of the best teams ever. That really yeah. best Saints teams ever that really got hurt by him deciding to hold out, but um, people are so mad right now. You have no idea. People hate when I talk about the Saints. Um, I love this I wanted to talk. So you told me something. You're going to break some news? You want to go ahead? Go ahead. Do it. Have you broke uh, this I already news? tweeted it. It's not that exciting. You, oh, you did tweet I, it. Okay. Nobody cares. That's the thing. I, uh, yeah, I'm working on a book now that I'm kind of keeping hush hush, but I, right. I actually agreed to a two book deal. And, um, it's, it's my dream book. My dream sports book has always been the USFL, which is my all-time favorite league. And uh, so basically, uh, Hal Mifflin, who's publishing the book coming out, uh, coming up, you know, they, they agreed to let me write a USFL book next. And uh, it's for very little money. It's, a, it's not the turnaround time I usually want, but um, I just think it's the greatest story ever. And I kind of have faith. I'm hoping... And maybe I've built up enough goodwill and maybe the story is good enough and maybe I can write in a good enough book that it'll surprise people. I thought of the funniest thing that could happen to you in regards to this book. You ready? So that was my biggest seller. So you're, you're researching the book, you're doing your work and you're waiting, yeah. you're waiting in the, lo- in the lobby and you're about to, to, uh, to talk to your next, uh, person. And the secretary says, uh, Mr. Pearl Jam, or Mr. Pearl Jam, <laughs> that's funny. It's a funny, uh, it's a funny slip there. Uh, Mr. Pearl, Pearlman, uh, the president will speak with you now. I know. What would you do? <laughs> Poor Jeff. I would oh go see God. the president. <laughs> that would be so horrible for you. I mean, because we all dream. That would not be great. We all dream as Americans to someday be able to meet the president. Have you met a president before? Uh, I was able to ask a question of Jimmy Carter. That's it. I was in the same building, the our hockey arena with Clinton. That was the closest I got. Clinton was a guest. He was a guest of uh, the previous owner before Pagula, the Paychecks guy. I can't think. Right. Galisano. Um, and he was there one night. That that's the closest for me. But imagine that you finally get to meet the United States president because you're researching a book, and it's Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump. That would not be so wonderful. He's not going to be the president anyway, though, is he? Is he? He's not going to be. No, I think it's going to be Rubio. You know I'm very liberal, but I think it's going to be Rubio. <laughs> Rubio is very electable. Um, very electable. He's very electable. I've, I've said, I think when we talked after the first Republican debate, I, I thought one of the pos- positives for the Republicans was how well he did because he is uh, very electable. i got to tell you um, about me and, and life as a Republican. I am literally uh, at sea with Republicans like me, and there's not many, on a raft with really no party that cares about us because I'm not religious. I'm a kind right. of Republican that's sort of a dying breed. Like I think there actually used to be a term like East Coast Republicans, um, and nobody cares about us because we're socially moderate or even sometimes socially liberal. Um, fiscally conservative, fiscally, right. you know, fiscally conservative. We care about defense. We like less. Um, 
less government, like it, like the 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 principles of the party that aren't pandered to anymore because seemingly all that matters is what the religious or the Tea Party right care about, and it's fake because it's not that the candidates necessarily represent those things. It's just the overwhelming amount to which those people vote and vote in important areas why this happens. So, like, someone like me is just not cared about. I'm just not. And plus they know, like, it, I don't matter anyways. I live in New York, so. Well, that's a problem, too. Yeah. I, um, my big problem right now is um, with the Republican Party is I, I, I just don't get the complete and total dismissiveness of climate change. And climate science. Now, I understand people debating it, uh, and that's fine, but I don't like Rubio. All right, so I could probably survive with Marco Rubio as president. It wouldn't be my top hundred choices of human beings to be president, but I could probably survive. But um, the fact that he is completely dismissive of climate change and would have said he would basically want to take apart the EPA and uh, undo any you know climate negotiations, he's kind of said all this. It really makes me nervous because I just, as a dad, I really consider it sort of the environment to be a really important issue. And I feel like I don't understand why one Republican presidential candidate doesn't take the position of, you know what, the environment's kind of important here. You can pander to, if you need to pander to the religious, say this is God's creation and blah, blah, blah. But it's a completely non-issue in the party right now. It really drives me crazy. I am, I am interested to see who would maybe take the contrarian view on that at some point as a strategy. <laughs> Um, because I think a lot of these guys, if we sat down and had a beer with them, they would say to us, of course, I'm concerned about climate yes. change. And of course, you know, in office, I would, you know, do the best I could to represent the party, but as well, um, to try, to try, I, I don't want this to happen under my watch kind of a thing. Um, but for whatever reason, it's like those kinds of things. And like, like there's not a single Republican, um, candidate right now uh maybe one or two that honestly honestly and passionately uh feels like like abortion is still an issue in the country in 2015 they they just like they just get stuck like having to pander like i said to um people who vote at a percent higher than anyone in the entire country I means what's well, like gay like six, gay marriage like it's a non-issue now. It's over. Like you totally lost. dead, it's and over. they know it, and they know it, and they don't care. They right. don't care. Of course, they know it. It's yeah. over, and it doesn't. They don't even care. No, nope. the thing that drives me the most crazy. These guys do not care. It is not. They care about primarily financial issues and national security issues, and that's totally fine. And that those are electable issues, but they have to pander to some really dumb people right. about and throw around gays, and it just drives me crazy because it's over. You lost, and it's okay. Like the world, it's like gays in the military, like. Right, you lost that battle, and it's okay. It worked out fine. You're not. No one's going to melt their faces off. Just drives me crazy. What I would love to see us improve as in a improve. What could change that instantly is if we could get more than thirty-seven percent or whatever of the country to vote on the presidential election. You know, because sixty yeah. sixty some percent didn't vote last time, and so the, and these people aren't stupid. They look okay. Who voted? Where did they vote? What do they care about? All right, let's run on that. You know, yeah, I, I was I was at Fredonia. I went to Fredonia State College in um, in New York, and I loved it. I had the most amazing time there. But I couldn't understand the people. The, uh, the Democrats there were so stupid. I felt so bad for them. I was there for the um, Bush reelection that year, 
Um, and uh, I remember like even Pearl Jam and uh, a bunch of artists like there. Were, this is when the, the idea of swing states was a really big thing. That it was going to come down to Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Um, they had you're talking about Bush Perry, not Bush Gore, right? Yeah, Bush's re-election. So his second one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was in Fredonia for that. And uh, Fredonia is 99 percent um, or more uh, liberal. Uh, the guys from the uh, Republican um, club on campus would always call me and try to get me to join, and I, I'd always say no, and they always ask me why. I'm like, because there's like four of you, and I don't think I add much as the fifth member of the group. Like, I'm good. It's it's not that important to me. But what I would always argue with, I had this amazing professor who was a very, very liberal guy himself, but I respected him a lot. He really was passionate about the country. He really cared, and um, I really – but – he would organize him and my classmates. They would organize these things on campus, and I would I would say to them, "Why don't you guys drive to Erie, Pennsylvania? Why are you doing this here? We're thirty five miles from Erie, Pennsylvania. You have won, <laughs> you won the election at Fredonia University. You guys can go stand in the student union with the uh, carry buttons and, and signs and and chant and yell. Nobody is hearing you. That hasn't already." either A, filled out their absentee ballot by then, B, is never going to do it or vote anyway, or, or C, has a mind that needs to be changed. Yet the election was right. so much, you know, Pennsylvania was such a huge state, and we were so close to rural Pennsylvania of all places. Uh, but nobody ever did that, and I can never right. never understand that. Um, I can never understand that at well, all. Well, it's actually, um, it's actually the, that kind of sums up my frustration being a liberal guy living in California and New York. Although where we live now in California is significantly more conservative than it was in New York. So um, I feel like you can, you can, it's not, it's not that fun living in an area where everyone shares your beliefs. You know, you feel like you have no, like in New York, just like you thought, what's the point? You know, I'm a Republican. We're not going to win in the state. I kind of feel like when I was living in New York, I'm a Democrat. I know my people are going to win in this state. It's much more sort of enjoyable when you can have maybe make an impact or at least, uh, you feel like there's a challenge, you know? I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I live in a relatively conservative part of the state. Um, yeah. You know, Erie County, we have executives that can be Republican from time to time. I mean, generally speaking, it's it's more conservative than uh, other parts of the state. And I think still, um, last time, Obama had, like, almost 90% of the vote in this area. So, I mean, I... I don't know. I voted in all the presidential elections because I think it's such an honor and it's so fun to um, to cast the vote. And actually, last time was the first time I voted for a Democrat, actually. Um, well, and he survived. Yeah, and he and he won. I was on the winning side. And I didn't do it just to be a smart elk. I just was not at all moved by uh, Mitt Romney. He, he didn't represent me or anything I cared about at all. I thought he was the... Right. He was the worst Republican nominee in my lifetime, I thought. He was not so wonderful. He, he didn't run a very good campaign either. He stunk. He's so just uninspiring and just like, yeah. so like, I don't know, just unappealing to me. But um, he had a line He had a line in his campaign that I always thought was such a dumb line. It kind of got overlooked, so it didn't kill him. But he said, um, at one point he was running, he was giving a speech, and he said, let's make Barack Obama a footnote in history. And I was thinking, you dumbass, like, this is the first African-American president in United States history. Like, 
Mitt Romney is not going to, even if he loses his election, Mitt Romney is not making him a footnote in history. It's such a stupid thing to say. I remember him saying that, thinking, you are just the worst candidate ever. You know what? I uh, Two times I had this thought. The day that Bush, the day after walking around at school, um, the day that Bush was reelected, and uh, I guess it's a little different when it's a re-up, but I remember thinking, like, why isn't everyone's attitude today uh, this hope that we just elected the greatest president in the history of the United States. I guess it's hard to get that attitude with the second term because you kind of know what what you got from the guy. But I didn't understand when Obama was elected, um, even though I had uh, not voted for him uh, that time. And um, I like, I mean, I thought McCain had just made a fatal error and in, in running mate uh, choice that. Just made it him impossible to be elected. I knew he had no chance to win when that happened, and um, but I, I thought did, it was brilliant when he picked her, though. For about two weeks, I thought the right man. That's a great choice. Great game plan. Wrong, wrong player. I guess kind of. Um, but, wrong player, right? Hardly. But um, I just didn't understand why everyone wasn't like, like I don't understand why the attitude that day isn't from everyone. All right, we elected the guy who's going to be the best president we've ever had. Because, I mean, that's what I want. In my lifetime, I want to live through the greatest president ever, whether he's Republican or Democrat. I don't care. Why would I care? I want to be a part of, you know, look back and say, hey, um, I was one of those people that that lived while the greatest president of all time was – or I mean, that will always be debatable. But one of those guys, you know, like a guy – you know, I mean, right now I've lived under two, I think, really great ones. Um, you know, one for each party. Um, right. Really, really, two really, really good ones. And I, and I want to live under a third. I mean, um, and Obama's done a lot better than Republicans give him credit for. But I'm always going to be disappointed with his presidency because, and it might not even hit, be his fault, but, um, you know, when he was elected, part of me and was like, "Yeah, this idea changed. This is this could be cool. This will be really cool if he's the kind of guy who's like RFK. Seemed like he might have been uh, had he had he made it all the way. This guy that just really really went a long way to make race um, a less combative issue. And it might not be his fault. It might be the other side exploiting him there, but." I mean, it's gotten so much worse, race relations in the country, uh, under him, as opposed to what it was the day before. And i got to put that on him a bit, and that hurts him, I think. I don't know what he's doing. I've heard this from other people, and I just don't know what... Um, I mean, I don't know. I, it's a very complicated issue, obviously. I mean, I I think that's when he was running, and when, you know, when Palin, who we just talked about, was... yeah you know, kind of deliberately and exaggeratedly referring to him as Barack Hussein Obama. And, you know, when you start seeing different things with sort of, you know, certain images of him as a monkey and little things like that. And, and I don't really know. I feel like he gave a really eloquent sort of speech on race and him running for president back in 2000. That was really well received. And I, I don't really know, like when I've heard him speak about race, I actually find it kind of inspiring. Like, I, I think he has tried to present what it is to be black in America. Like, try to explain to people, uh, 
how blacks sometimes feel when it comes to the police, when it comes to uh, the legal system. And I kind of think whenever he does that, you have uh, a certain genre of conservative white people jumping up and screaming, look, he favors so-and-so, or look, he's ruining racialism in this country. I don't really know what he's supposed to do. I really don't. I just don't know what he's supposed to do. Yeah, it's a it's a monumental task. Um, I don't know what he's supposed to do either, but he's a guy we elected president, and I feel like that guy should know. And whatever oh, he's gosh, it's kind of a hard one, though. It is a hard I don't one. Know. It's a hard... I, I I just felt like I just wish. Um, I hope that someday we get a guy. My number one hope is that someday someday we get a guy that. Um, that breaks down at least a little bit what has really grown in my lifetime. Um, just this clear divide um, and this nastiness between the two sides. And um, You know what? Wait, wait. I'm going to say something. I actually don't think it's a matter of a guy or a woman. Like, I really don't. Like, I think uh, Bush, for as much as I do not like him as a president, right? Like, a good guy, a decent guy... Um, a guy willing to talk to you. I think Obama, a very smart guy, like good intentions. I think it's like, I really think we need to change. I don't think there's some magical guy because I think whoever we throw up there, we're going to tear apart limb by limb um, via social media, via political operatives, via big money. Um, I mean, the unfettered sort of, you know, financial wherewithal is an election now you're just going to throw everything you have at the guy you're running against and you have a lot to throw at him. So I don't, I don't think there is, I don't think Kennedy survives nowadays. I don't think, uh, Lyndon Johnson does. I don't think Reagan is considered as great as he is, as he was back then. I just think we in, we in society now live to tear these people apart, whether Democrats or Republicans. It's kind of heartbreaking because it's like you say, we're waiting for this great, we're waiting for this person to come along and I don't think, maybe the person that has come along, maybe it was Bush, maybe it was Obama, maybe it was Clinton, I don't even know. But we don't even allow it to happen anymore. That's a that pretty sucks. good point. That's a pretty good point. I was, fa- I've, I grew up fascinated by JFK. I don't know why I grew up, I've read probably 45 books about him, his family, his life, and, and actually kind of a really cool story. Um when I was at Yale in May for my brother's graduation, um, we were walk. He, my brother, was in one of the like secret societies at Yale, and uh, yeah. on Saturday night of graduation, I got to go to it for like a half an hour before they I had to leave. Um, yeah. But we were walking to it, and uh, it was just me and my brother. We we're walking down the street, and this kid is walking towards us and we stop. My brother talks to him. He's like, Oh, this is so-and-so. It's my brother. Oh, we shake hands. They talk about something uh, for the next day. And uh, we say goodbye. We walk away. And my brother's like, Oh, do you know who that was? And I was like, no, he's like, that was JFK's grandson. And, wow. um, it's Car- So Carolyn's son, I guess. Um, right. That's cool. And, uh, you know what, you know what? Uh, and I would have obviously never asked him this, but you know, what? you know what? I was super curious about the rest of the night. Was did he ever see the Zapruder film? Oh, interesting. That was so like that'd be a weird one. That'd be a weird one to ask a guy. About I'd never, guy obviously, I'd never would. I have too much respect for for his family and for people. I'd never, I'd never say that to anyone. But 
I just had this like crazy like like just curiosity of like I wonder if he's seen the Zapruder film. You know, I had a um, a good friend from college who worked at George Magazine under uh, John Junior, and uh, I remember when he when you know when he died in that plane crash, it was really heartbreaking and. and used to talk about what a good guy he was and what a decent guy he was and what a sort of, uh, you know, obviously wealthy and from this family, but a very sort of guy of the people. And I think when you talk about, you know, every now and then someone comes along in, in politics or in public life where you're like, yeah, that guy has something about him. I kind of think maybe if Kennedy had lived, uh, we would have seen something. Maybe. I wish he would have. I wouldn't. I wish his brother would have lived, too. I've read a lot about him yeah. and... I think as far as race goes, I think that was a guy who knew how to who who knew how to really handle it so eloquently somehow, I don't know. But um yeah. sports guests are here with Jeff Perlman. Uh we're just two guys uh just talking. Uh he's at Jeff Perlman on uh Twitter and uh Showtime is in paperback. The run is long over at this point with Showtime. Um, and I know I asked you this in February, but it's even this much later and this much further away from it. How do you feel about Showtime now with all, with all this time that's passed? How do you feel about about oh. the book and how you did and and how you think it will its place will uh, how it will stand in the Jeff Perlman book uh, list <laughs> when it's all said and done? I didn't know there was a. I didn't know there was. A, I mean, I don't, you know. You know, it's funny. I wrote a, this is kind of random. I wrote a blog post about Jason Whitlock today. Who I read it. I can't stand. Yeah, I read it. I hate him too. I got in a fight with him on Twitter he's, once. He's the worst. Yeah. He's, he's just the worst. He's the worst. He's the worst because he symbolizes everything bad in journalism. It's ego first bullshit. It just drives me crazy. And uh, to me, like, being serious, like, I take the book seriously. I work my ass off. I really do. And, like, I love these things. But, like, there's no, I mean, there's no legacy. Like, I'm going to be dead one day, and maybe someone will take one of these books out of the library until they're out of, you know, out of circulation. They're sold off at the for 50 cents at the book barn. You know, like, it's kind of how it works. So, you know. I look at it a little really different. I look at it different. I look yeah. at it sort of like a discography for a band. I, I think that yeah. that one day you'll be done, your career will be done, you'll be gone. We'll still know about you because the books are so good. And there'll be a group of two guys one day sitting around and saying, I just read the Perlman Mets book. What should I read next? What do you think? Or whatever. Like, I think, I think it lives on more like that instead. And, and then that's going to be a real hard thing for the author to believe about his work. Cause you're such a humble guy. I know and modest, but that's, I just, a, I just think that's kind of how I look at it. Think, like, Right, we were talking about Pearl Jam before we started this, and like, to me, like, there are certain writers who are Pearl Jam, and I'm more like Blind Melon. You know, like, I, I'm not even saying that, like, I'm not saying that, like, false humility. I'm saying, like, you know, there have been some all-time, all-time legendary biographies that have been written, you know. Uh, I mean, Robert Caro, did you read the Lyndon Johnson books? Yes. I mean, you know, to me, that guy, all right, so he's, He's whatever, Beatles, Pearl Jam, whoever you want to say. But, like, biography on the 86 Mets, as fun as it is and as meaningful, I think it might have been for, for a bunch of Mets fans, which is great and, like, makes my day and is awesome. Like, I'm kind of aware at the end of the day, like, 
there are a lot of sports books out there, and while I'm, I, you know, I feel like some of them are, are you know, like sweet. I, I mean, it doesn't even matter. That's the thing. Like, it truly, I said this before, probably in your show. Like, I, when I was in college, the goal was to be, like, the greatest sports writer ever and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you get older and you realize, like, you're so lucky to do this stuff, and it's really fun and to kick, and it's awesome, and I get to pick up my kids, and you get to dig into sports. But, like, at the end of the day, like, my my wife's ex-boyfriend is a neurosurgeon. You know, you could definitely make the argument just based on careers that she married the wrong guy. That guy's a much more important job than I do. It's just entertainment, you know? Yeah, but I wonder if he's even close to as good of a father as you are. Now, I'll admit I, I think he's I'm, I'm an outsider, and I get mm-hmm. – and I almost feel like it's inappropriate for me to say things like that to you. That would be a turnoff to you. But you're the one who makes that stuff public. And when you make your feelings towards your children public and when you talk about the strategies you and your your wife discuss about raising parents or the things that happen on a day-to-day basis with your daughter, your son, whatever, it's something that I hope that I can be that good. So you dismiss yourself uh, in that sense, but I would put everything I had that you're the better dad uh, than the neurosurgeon. <laughs> I appreciate that. And, I mean, I, I, and I mean, maybe that's more important. Well, he probably works more more hours than I do at his job. I mean, you know, he's got, he's probably on call all the time. But I, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, to me, that's a funny thing. I, it's really weird. Like, when I was at Sports Illustrated, I remember I was at SI, and I was coming up, and there was me, John Wertheim, and Grant Wall. We were coming up at the same time, right? And yep. everyone was scratching and clawing to get to become senior writers. I and mean, that was it. It was like, this, this is the gold standard of what I want to be. And then you, uh, you become a senior writer and it's awesome and it's great. And all three well, of you did, you right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. all did and we moved up and they're, they're yeah. really good guys and they're still friends and, and, uh, and John's obviously the executive like, editor now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's had a great career. Grant's had a great career. They're, it's yep. great. And I'm, I'm thrilled that I came along with them. Like, it's really kind of an honor for me. And, and, uh, you write books and the, you hope the books do well and then they do well and you think, man, this is great, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's a freaking stupid cliche, but it's so true. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing that has been greater benefit for me in this job and this career path. And I didn't see it back when I was 24 or whatever. Then that like, I get to pick up my kids and my kids, you know, tonight, tonight literally came home at four from writing at a coffee shop. I uh, took my daughter to water polo picked her up. I mean, I watched her compete, picked her up, dropped her off. I took her to Dairy Queen, dropped her off at home, went to get my son, watched him last, last half hour of Little League, came home, put them both to bed. Tomorrow I'll wake up with them. I'll drive them to school. Like, the greatest freaking thing about this, by far, hands down, is that I am, like, not the dad who doesn't know his kid's friends and doesn't know what they want to eat for lunch. And, and you know, like, it's just the best. And, and it's like, it's just the gift of all gifts in this career, truly, is that my wife and I, um, you know, view this as sort of a team effort, and we really split the parenting. It's, it's you know, I, I always hope, like, maybe by being around, it makes their growing up go by just a teeny tiny bit slower, you know, because I'm haunted by the fact that they're getting older, and I'll probably blink and they'll be off at college. Hmm. 
but I still think you, and that and that's uh that's an amazing amazing part for sure for you and and but I still think you discount the people that are out there that for whatever reason Walter Payton meant everything to them and then they got to read your book yeah, and, and then I ruined and, it and, and yeah, I ruined it maybe me. you did ruin, maybe that was a bad example but um no if they're <laughs> no it's okay I don't no if they're being honest they they love him for his flaws as well but you know like that's such a such a that's such a big thing for people too I think and not every job has that like oh I wanted to tell you this because we were talking about Pearl Jam and catalogs and things like that. Um, there's a there's a documentary about the band Rush called uh, All the World's a Stage. And it's great whether you yeah. like Rush or not. It's one of the best music documentaries I've ever seen. And uh, Jack Black is interviewed in the uh, in the book or in the in the film. Right. And he's talking about how to him every band is a bottle of ketchup. And you turn the bottle over and some bands they shake and shake and shake but they only got enough ketchup in there for one album and then another band they flip it over and they got four or whatever and then there's bands like Rush they flip it over and the ketchup just it never stops coming out there's just there's going to be enough ketchup in there for them to pour it as long as they want to have it flipped over and that's cool and I wonder if book writing is like that because I, I think about someone like Molly Knight, who you turned me on to her book. Like I, I mm-hmm. learned about her book through through the class. I had heard a story. Yeah, great. Oh, I love I love this book. Okay, I read a story or something past, and I think maybe mentioned there's a Dodgers book coming out, and and in it, the author says that Puig shit got thrown out of the bus or something. Like I, I had heard that. Mm-hmm. And then I read the quasi and I said, oh, this must be that book where I heard that thing about Puig stuff. Um, and I read the quasi that you did with Molly and I liked it. And I'm like, I'm going to see if they want to feature this as, as in the book club. And, and I got a hold of the publisher and they did. And, and we ran the book and it was great. It's one of my favorite books I've read in, in forever. Uh, and um, now she's going to have to flip that ketchup bottle over again. And we'll see if there's a second one for her. I'm sure there will be. That's how much I like the first one. Yeah. Now, you flip yeah. this ketchup bottle over like seven times. Do, do you ever get – I just told you this analogy one minute ago, so maybe you didn't have a chance to think of it. But do you ever sit down to write the next book and think that maybe it's just not going to be in you this time, that maybe you've, you, you've written your best book and, and that you just you don't have a chance to write one as good as you already have? Or does that just – kind of not matter in a way. Um, I don't really think of that. I mean, I consider Sweetness my best book, right? Me too. Like, I really do. Me too. And, uh, yeah, thank you. And I mean, I wrote Showtime and I was kind of, I didn't love it when I handed it in and, uh, you know, it got really good reviews and you see people say like, I had a lot of people say, ah, oh, it's my favorite of your books, blah, blah, blah. It's my favorite, it's my favorite sports book or blah, 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 whatever, you know, and, uh, and there's no way I would say that's a better book than Sweetness. But it just kind of, I don't know if there really is a, be- a set thing really as best. I don't even know if there is really a set thing as, as your best or your worst. I mean, I don't even know. I say Sweetness is my best, right? But like, I think probably Boys Will Be Boys and Bad Guys 1 are definitely more fun reads, you know? And, and I think, uh, 
in a lot of ways, Bonds was more revealing. And then I always like, I always dog my Clemens book. And then recently, I had it in the bathroom. I found a copy and I started looking through it. Because when I write books, sometimes I like to see what I do with others. I don't think that book is nearly as bad as I say it was. You know, like... You so, told me not even to read it. Ah, uh, <laughs> I don't... You told me that. You know what? I, I, that, that I can't read the Clemens book? You told me. You said, don't even read that one. Because I, I, oh, we, we had worked together with, through, we, to, with the sweetness. And I said, well, what I should I read next? It. And you said, not that one. Don't read that one at all. Yeah, I didn't feel great about it. But um, then every now and then, I, someone literally sent me, uh, I don't know if it was a tweet or an email the other day saying, the reason I became a sports writer is because of Rockefeller. I'm like, really? You know what? You know, but like, not what? Like, that's amazing. Like, what? Are you crazy? But but then you're like, well, that's really cool. And, and so I don't know, you know. I don't know if I want, I don't think I'm going to be one of these guys like Feinstein who writes like 30 or 40 books. Um, I don't think I really want to do that. Like, I like the idea of trying new things in life. Um, but I still really enjoy it. And I still like, I still like the pleasure pain of it all, you know, and I still love sitting in a coffee shop, uh, with a stack of papers and a big backpack, um, in, in basketball shorts and a t-shirt and a baseball cap thinking how my friends are all working at the law firm and the, you know, the hedge fund, whatever, and I'm sitting there writing a book. So to me, it's pretty sweet. As long as someone's going to keep having me do it, I, you know, I, at least for now, I'll keep plugging away. You know what I was thinking, too, about, about sports books that I think is kind of unique about them? If you write a book, if you decide your next book is going to be about the Peyton and Breeze Saints, like you decide that that's the topic you're going to go 2006 to whatever Saints and cover yeah. that team. There's no chance that that won't be my favorite Jeff Perlman book. Right, because of the topic. Right, you know what I mean. Right. Like, and I think that's sort of unique to sports books. Like, yeah, maybe for someone like me who I don't have an emotional investment in any of the particular books you've written yet. I'm not a Mets fan, Cowboys fan, Clemens, Bonds. There's no reason for me to like one over the other yet. Maybe that will happen sometime. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But I get to kind of look at them objectively. And to me, it'd be crazy to think that anyone uh, would come up to you and say that, that the Bonds book is better than Sweetness. But if Barry Bonds was your favorite player of all time, that's... Of course, that would be it's your like favorite a one. Yeah, yeah, it's like a treat. I mean, I remember being a kid and like the thrill. When my dad would bring home, he'd bring home. Uh, he'd stop off on his way home at the. He'd go to the library in Stanford, Connecticut, and he'd bring home like a stack of sports biographies for me. And you know, you'd go through, and it'd be like Joe Charbonneau or Doug DeSensei's or whatever. And then there'd be one where it'd be like Willie Randolph. He'd be like, whoa. Willie Randolph has a biography. This is amazing. You know, like, so the personal connection, uh, I'm reading a book now and I've read it a million times after it sits in my, on my sink. And it's, I mentioned Blind Melon before. I love the band Blind Melon. And it's a, uh, this guy, uh, Greg Aiello wrote a, uh, biog- Greg Prado, excuse me, wrote a biography of the group Blind Melon. And it's an oral history. And that thing, whenever I'm brushing my teeth, going to the bathroom, whatever, I open to a page and read that book. And is it like the best written book of all time? Probably not. But like, I'm I'm hooked on it. I'm a sucker for it because this is a topic that I'm really fascinated in. So, yeah, that you. that guy writes great 
oral histories too. He wrote one about called Grunge is Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, was it good? Yeah, it's really good. Um, he like I I've always obviously that's my favorite era of music. I actually just went and seen Chris Cornell at UB the other night. Oh, it's so good. Um, but what do you uh, think of Melon? How do you feel about Blind Melon? Oh, I I like them actually very much. Um, Pearl Jam wrote a song called B Girl, and um, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, yeah knew it was that. a B side, and I said, you know what? I don't know anything about this band other than that song. And uh, so I, I think it was right around when iTunes came out. Um, so I bought um, an album and I was like, oh, I had no idea this is what that band is. Because, you know, if you only know yeah. that song, that's not what Pine Mountain is, obviously, as a band. Um, and no, I really yeah. enjoy it. I, I listen to the album I have uh, often. Uh, but yeah, but that author, he he also wrote a, an oral history called Grunge is Dead. And um, it's really good. Do you like oral histories? Yeah, I love oral histories. Like yeah. love, 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 histories. Yeah, they get a bad name sometimes. But they have to be well done. Yeah, they have to be well done though. Grantland was doing amazing ones. That like that was they. Grantland, I don't think they've done them much anymore. But for a while there. Like, now, have you seen an impact? Have you seen an impact from Simmons leaving Grantland? Is it a different site? Um. Uh, not. To, I mean, to some degree, but not really, because still, I mean. Almost all the writers I regularly re- regularly read on Grantland are Simmons hires. You know, yeah. you know Katie Baker and um, you know my favorite Grantland writer is Brian Curtis, uh, who is oh yeah unbelievable. I've known him for years. He's so He's good. Been around forever. You know, and my second one is David Shoemaker, and somehow they were roommates in <laughs> in high school. They're from the same area, um, and I love reading about wrestling. Um, I love wrestling books. I've read probably 300 wrestling books. So, um, you know, I'm, uh, I don't want to brag, but I'm friends with, uh, Tommy dreamer. Do you know Tommy dreamer? Yeah. Yeah. Of course I know him. Yeah. Yeah. Is he, Tommy, I guess he's a great he and guy. I were parents at my kid's elementary school. We would be the two dads picking up every day. I always thought that was funny. Me and Tommy dreamer. Oh yeah. Cause he, is he from Mayo pack as well? He is right. Well, no, this is a new Rochelle, this new Rochelle, New York. Okay. Yeah. I thought maybe he was... And his wife was his... Uh, his wife, his real-life wife, who's an absolute freaking delight, her wrestling name was like Brayla McGillicuddy. Beulah, her, yeah. Uh, Beulah McGillicuddy. His, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. She was his manager and mm-hmm. ended up getting married and having two daughters. Great people. Yeah, there's an unbelievable... Actually, probably the best DVD that the WWF ever made is called The Rise and Fall of ECW. And um, it was one of the first ones they did, too. And... uh I come in and out with wrestling. Like my grandfather was this Italian guy, came from Italy, you know. And uh, to me, he's kind of a hero, but he's kind of a bad guy in my family because he had two families. He had my grandma, and my grandma were never actually married because he had another wife and another family, and they were first. Yeah. And then he probably had one in Italy too. But um, he kind of came back. He left on my mom's sixteenth birthday, and he came back. Um, I guess to die. Um, and I got to know him for a few years and he, his line was wrestling is real and football is fake. Don't listen to your mother. She's lying to you. So my mom would say that's fake or whatever. And so to me, wrestling was just a way to be in the room with my grandfather who was this really mysterious yeah. guy who could like 
barely speak the language and I couldn't understand why obviously half of the people there didn't want him there. Um, you know, and then that was right, you know, right with the Hogan, you know, the first real boom period of wrestling, the Hogan explosion. And I was a huge, huge, huge wrestling mark. And, uh, then I rode that all the way through the attitude era. And then I took 10 years off and I just came back, um, two years ago, but whether I'm watching, whether I'm watching or not, I just love the history of wrestling. So I always uh, read their books or watch DVDs or stuff like that. How long? And Hogan, you- and you were, you come back, and Hogan is still here. Right. Yeah, Hogan. I don't know. That, that's the most. I don't know what they're gonna do. What do you do when when the greatest guy in your history you maybe have to pretend didn't exist? I don't know if anyone else has ever had a dilemma like that. I mean, he's by far and away the most important wrestler of all time. And as the Babe Ruth of wrestling, got to be the Babe Ruth of wrestling. Yeah, by far. And right now, right now they're taking the approach of let's just pretend he didn't exist. Weird. That's so weird. It's so wrestling though, too. So wrestling. But I'm all about Junkyard Dog. Whatever Hogan did is okay. I'm about the JYD. <laughs> Junkyard Dog and Hulk Hogan had a match on Saturday night's main event where they pretended to be the other one. Did you ever see this? No, I missed that one. Yeah, so Hogan is basically coming out working the JYD gimmick, and JYD yeah. comes out and he's working the Hogan gimmick. I don't know. At Jeff Perlman, Jeff does not want to talk about wrestling with me, which is a smart decision. I, thought, I like talking about wrestling. I love talking <laughs> wrestling. I can give you my top five all-time favorite wrestlers. All right, go ahead. I'm going to go Junkyard Dog number one. Okay. I'm going to go Sergeant Slaughter, number two. Okay. I'm going to go, even though I didn't realize he was such a scumbag when I liked him, and a murderer, apparently, but Jimmy Superfly <laughs> yeah, apparently. Got to go number uh-huh. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. Right. I'm going to go him, number three. I'm going to go uh, Big John Stud, number four. And uh, I'm going to go Rocky Thompson, Father of the Rock, number five. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, my number one. There you clear, go. My number one clearing away is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And, um, yeah, great. Yeah, and at WrestleMania three, which is still, I mean, one of the greatest days of my life. I've watched WrestleMania three. I don't know, three thousand times. Probably is not an exaggeration. Um, and he won. He beat Savage for the Intercontinental Title that day. And people always think the best wrestling ever was when what was going on when they were a kid, because that's when you can believe it the most. That's when you can like. You know, that's when yeah, you, of course. Can, you know, live it right. And um, so that's what happened when in my wheelhouse. And uh, my dad took me then. And so that was like in April. My dad took me in June to the odd for the TV. T- there are TV tapings in town. And oh, I was so excited that Steamboat's going to be there with the belt. And this is going to be so cool. And he lost the belt. And I cried wow. for 45 minutes. I was inconsolable. Meanwhile. Inconsolable. Meanwhile, Steamboat, Steamboat's backstage smoking a cigarette and hooking up with a hooker. Yeah, well, the back like crying. The backstory was uh, Steamboat had to drop it because he he wanted time off uh, for the birth of his first son, and Vince Witt said, "You can have the time off, but you can't keep the belt." So that's why he dropped it that day. Oh, what? Yeah, and he dropped it to the yeah, honky tonk man. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, he dropped it to the honky tonk man, who was just particularly hateable for you know a seven year old oh, yeah. at the time, and. uh um, yeah, I cried. I forgot about him. Um, I was going to say, I uh, I always found it suspicious 
I didn't find it suspicious, but you would think you would. Like, I remember, um, like, Mr. T became a wrestler briefly, right? right and, like, yeah. they would throw these guys in, these random celebrities in, and they'd immediately be good wrestlers. <laughs> you know, like, and that should have been a little tip-off right there. Like, Mr. T, all of a sudden, is Hulk Hogan's tag team partner, and he's a very capable wrestler after, like, two weeks of training. Yeah, actually, if you can hear, if you ever heard uh, Roddy Piper talk about that, I don't know if you know, but they had legit heat Piper and um, Mr. T because when that around that time the business was really protected by people in the business. Vince McMahon was the, yeah. kind of one of the first people, kind of like completely changing the game, and uh, and Piper said the way that he made Mr. T look good was all amateur wrestling stuff. Front face lock, take him to the ground, grapple with him, get him to tag out. That's how he made it look good. Like that was his way to deal with it. And Mr. T would want yeah. to do like high spots. He'd want to do uh, more wrestler type things. And Piper was like, "Not with me in the ring. I'm not going to be embarrassed by you." You know. And then years, yeah. ago, you know. So that was his, the way he dealt with it. But yeah, they had legitimate heat. Um, they hated each other. And uh, at WrestleMania. Uh, 30, Mr. T was inducted into the Hall of Fame in the celebrity wing. And uh, Piper tells a story how he was riding on a golf cart with his son. And he said to his son, do you want to see what a man is? And he got off and he went up to Mr. T and shook his hand. And and they put put what happened in the past behind them and hugged. And he's like, I want to show my son that, you know, you can't hold on to things like that or whatever. Kind of a teachable moment. And I feel terrible to this day for his son because, you know, they were the kind of they're It's known that Piper and his son were like best friends and inseparable. And Piper right. was a great dad. And it hurts for me. I feel bad for that kid. I, I'm sure he's still hurting very, very badly. His dad uh, died so recently. But I could I listen. I still think of Piper more from, I just want to say I think of him more from They Live. From wrestling, yeah, people love that movie as like kind of a silly Camping. movie with a wrestler. Yeah, yeah, people like that one a lot. Yeah. I'm a huge fan yeah. of the movie Body Slam because I was a huge A Team guy, and uh, Dirk Benedict is kind of the star of that. And it was like the face man with wrestlers, and at the time, it just blew my mind. Um, so I've always been. A Did huge you ever see the? Uh, you ever see the guy on YouTube who maybe a couple years ago? track down all the members of the A-team. Yes, And yes. they all, um, and he they all get... agree that George Papard was kind of an asshole. Yeah, but that stinks because George is no longer with us. He didn't have a chance to defend himself. Yeah. You know, I was saying I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, no, and I, and I think they're probably right. He he uh, he couldn't handle the fact that Mr. T made more money than him, I don't think. Yeah. 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 And he was like a classically trained actor. I mean, he was in Breakfast at Tiffany's, for God's sake. Of course. And I was like in the eighteen with Mr. T. Right. But um I was going to say that I could talk to Jeff all night and I could probably even listen to it. Uh but everyone else is probably ready to tap out. So What are you I, trying to say? Well, I'm trying to say we should wind down. Um I wanna get the Twitter out again at Jeff Perlman on Twitter and I really wanna I really want you're not exactly promoting a book, but people should be on the blog more. JeffProman dot com it's a great place because, for one, the Quaz is there every week. And uh, the Quaz is this really just awesome. It's kind of like what we just did, but with someone who's important and you. 
Um, <laughs> and and who knows why they're important? It's a cool thing. They might be important, yeah, like you said, because they're a neurosurgeon, or they might be important because they were the little kid in big, or they might be important because they just wrote this awesome book about the Dodgers. You never know what it'll be um, from week to week. Um, it's like a fortune cookie. Yeah, like fortune and cookie. Uh, it's there at jeffperlman.com. Is it even jeffperlman.com slash quaz actually too? Well, get that get you right there? Yeah. Yeah, so jeffperlman.com slash quaz. And I want people to read that more um, because it's it's super cool. It's one of the cooler things on the internet. At Jeff Perlman on Twitter, it's always a link to it. And then just on jeffperlman.com, there's also – uh, ways to get the books um, and uh, links to your blog where you uh, just blog about stuff that pisses you off because um, you are angry a lot <laughs> at the... Uh... Yeah, but it's not real anger. It's, it's internet anger. Internet it's anger. Anything. I actually have a very happy life. And you get that out and uh, it's stuff yeah. about parenting and stuff about writing and uh, another kind of fortune cookie of who knows what will be on the blog. Uh, but definitely worth your time. Let's end on this because I wanted to ask you this. You were talking about how your son um, is a big is into eighties football and how you guys, you know, obviously have that as like kind of a thing, like a Jeff and Emmett thing. What about movies? When have you like have you and your son watched? Like I, I thought of this because tomorrow is actually people have been pretending it all year, but tomorrow is actually. Back to the Future Day uh, in 2015, the day that they went to um, in 2015. That's pretty amazing. And do you do this with movies? Do you and your son watch uh, movies that obviously – Anthony Cumia jokes about this um, from the Opie and Anthony show. He's known for dating much younger women and he jokes that his go-to thing is always he shows them Jaws. Because they they weren't you know oh, they weren't so what about with your son do you guys you guys watch movies or even your daughter um, have you yeah well let me say my, it's actually the three of it's the four of us because it's usually my wife my son who's who's nine and my daughter who's twelve and uh, so we the movies have gotten really good lately actually it's one of the coolest things you know there are sad things about your kids growing up from sort of infancy and, and moving on to elementary school and middle school but one of the cool things are movies and so it, it's not too many. We're not so big on the Disney films anymore. Every once in a while, but like, you know, you can now start showing them things. Like we did, uh, we did the other day, "Catch Me If You Can," the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. You know, um, remember the Titans, Hoosiers, Rudy. You know, good, good sports movies. Uh, my kid loves Rocky Three. <laughs> you know, randomly. Right. Um, the T one. That's the Mister T one. Uh, yeah, I am a Mister, a solid Mister T. You know. Uh, do you watch? Did you watch with, the Karate uh, Kid with him? Your son? Did you and your son watch the Karate Kid together? Do I watch together? what? You and your son watched the Karate Kid together, yeah? Uh, we've all watched the Karate Kid. My yeah. daughter too. We love the Karate Kid. Oh, the best, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, very good. Have you I watched for kids? The updated one. Remember the Titans is big time. Uh, yeah, we've seen both of them. Is that any good? Uh, I, I think they're both good actually. Really? I, I just yeah, can't it was even... not a bad. If you're gonna have a remake of the Karate Kid, that is as good as it's gonna get. All right, I'll, I'll trust you. That yeah. that's so, yeah. really cool to Movie, me. Movies are good. That's that's a cool. If I ever um, if I ever have a kid, <clears throat> um, I might want to uh, really show them movies, uh, because that just sounds fun to me. So I wanted to ask you about that uh, because it was timely. With Wait, me. I will tell you one thing. Yeah, 
just along those lines, just because it's interesting, is my son, my daughter, not as much, but my son really likes rap. So, and I love rap. So, for a while, I was very careful about what hip hop he could listen to. You know, so right, a lot much, of sort of yeah. tender on the ear stuff, Young MC, right. Run DMC, Curtis Jack Blow, Jeff. But uh, say that again, Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow, yeah, we would play Curtis Blow basketball on the breaks, um, stuff like that. And but now, as he's gotten older, we've had kind of had this discussion. He's nine, so he's still young, but we have he realizes curses are not a thing to say in school, you know, or around your friends or anywhere. Right. Um, but I, I also like exposing the good music. So, you know, we listen to more Tupac, more Nas, more Biggie, and I don't always bleep everything out. Eminem, and he, uh, I think he's comfortable with that because I've made him comfortable with that. And uh, so we, we actually share kind of a love of of, uh, of hip-hop, which is kind of nice. So That's kind of cool. Yeah, music is going to be, it's going to be hard for me because I'm a really passionate music guy. And it's going to be really hard for me to um, to relate to whatever music my kid might like someday, because no, but you're 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 seeing it all wrong. Like you can have an amazing influence on your kids. We've been playing our kids non-kiddie music from a very young age, and music we like, we we have them listen to. And you know, my my daughter's favorite CD from probably ages two to four was Kiss Unplugged, which I'm not saying is the greatest album ever. But it was—it's like this fun thing. You can have such an impact on your kids and what music they listen to. It's really a joy, actually. Yeah, and I've seen it happen with my brother. You know, I told you I've been to seventy-eight uh, Pearl Jam shows, and people always yeah. ask me, you know, what's your favorite one? And and from a purely Pearl Jam standpoint, my favorite one is—I saw them play a benefit in Seattle um, in two thousand and three, and it's my favorite one for a couple of reasons. One, it's the last thing I remember about my life before I was sick. Um, because that was in October and I got really sick in December that year. So like that, that trip is really the last memory I have. Cause I'm sure, I mean, obviously stuff happened, but it was insignificant everyday life things that happened in between, uh, coming home from Pearl Jam and, and that. Um, but really the honest answer is my favorite Pearl Jam show ever is the first one I took my brother Anthony to, um, because it, he was a freshman in high school. It was actually like the third day. In high school, it finally worked out where he wasn't away for hockey or anything because it's a weeknight, and my parents allowed me to take him. And to be able to like stand next to him, his first song uh, was Release, uh, which I joked with him about because I it would, took 21 shows for me to hear Release. And this is just Anthony's life. He heard it the very first show. But um, to, just to be able to like stand next to him and, and watch him hear that and – and to see it affect him the same way it affected me, like that's the best show. That was the best night because I got to to do it with with Anthony. But I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. you have a lot more of those as a parent. It's a nice thing, you know. If I'm a parent someday, because I'm not with saying I am. Yeah, I'm not saying I am. Right. But if I right. am someday. All right. At yeah. Jeff Perlman on Twitter, JeffProman.com. Uh, Showtime. Sweetness. The Mets. The Mets might win the World yeah, Series. The, the Mets might win the World Series. Win the World Series. And if they do, yeah. what a better time to read about the last time they won the World Series. Um, so when the bad guys won. <laughs> um, so you could do yeah. that one. Uh, or the Cowboys won. Uh, which is uh, probably my second favorite. Either that or the Mets won. 
I don't know. No back and right. forth. But Jeff, thanks for so much time. I appreciate that. It's three AM here in Buffalo. Hi man. Three AM in Buffalo. So Good chatting. I, yeah. I enjoyed Bye. it. We gotta get you twice a year no matter what, whether you're working on a book or not. So you were up you were up for time time number two. I'm in. Hi man. All right, talk Take to you care. soon. All right, I want to thank Jeff Perlman for being on the podcast today. Nothing like talking to a bug like Jeff until 3 a.m. on the East Coast. Really appreciate him doing it with me. Also, want to thank Katie Baker not only for being on the podcast, but for writing such beautiful words about Buffalo, New York. Read them at Grandland.com and take them seriously. Um, people joke about us, and it hurts me. Uh, but you would love it here, trust me. You can find last week's podcast, which featured Adrian Dater. Adrian and I did about 40 minutes on the NHL. And Kenny Albert, who had just called the crazy Rangers and Blue Jays uh, baseball game. And we got a behind-the-scenes look at what went down in the seventh inning of uh, of that ball game uh, with Kenny. You can find that and all of our podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find them on Stitcher and iTunes and wherever you listen uh, you listen to podcasts. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. All right, one last thing for today. And I said in the open that I thought about having the first lady on, but that it might be a bomb. And then I thought for a while, uh, I couldn't think of anything else and said, well, if it's a bomb, well, it kind of fits with the rest of this show, which can tend to be a bomb. Uh, so here she is, the first lady of the sportscasters is with us. Tammy, this is the first time you've ever been on the show, right? Yeah. You've never been on before? No, I just did an intro once. What was that about? Um, I said, now, here's my boyfriend Steve on the sportscasters. Oh, boy. <laughs> You are so incredibly quiet that I'm sure no one can hear you. You got to talk right into the microphone there. Try again. I said, hi, welcome to the Sportscasters. All right, that's a little bit better. You're listening to my boyfriend, Steve. I can't believe we did that. That's so humiliating. You wanted me to. All right, so I want to talk to you about Lamar Odom and Khloe Kardashian because you're, kind of, you're kind of tied into this world. And I want to know... See, I think Lamar Odom, he pulled off an unbelievable move here. So Lamar Odom, what, a year or two ago? Three years ago. Three years ago? It's been that long? Yep. He screwed up the relationship with uh, Khloe Kardashian. Yeah. The one that's probably not a Kardashian. But she is. It's questionable. She looks nothing like anyone else in the family. But anyway. So he was married to her and he screwed it up badly. That's been three, really? Three years ago? Three years, yep. So he screws the marriage up, and she tells him he's got to get out because he was MIA, and the uh, the assumption was always drugs. Yeah, drugs and girls. Right. But no one kind of really, I know on their show, they kind of slickly ever avoided like using the word drugs. It was always like, 
Lamar's problems or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. They tell you what's going on without actually telling you what's going on. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So his NBA career winds down, and uh, he's tried to wedge his way back into Chloe's life, maybe. They're showing stuff on the show where they're sort of still talking. Her relationship with uh, the newer guy, that yeah. ends. It's a, Well, not till just recently. Oh, just recently. Yeah, okay. this is the second guy since she's been with Black Lamar. Oh. See, I knew we'd have some information here. So what, what Lamar did that I think is brilliant is he said, all right, this is how I'm going to get my wife back. I'm going to go to a whorehouse, spend 75 k on unlimited whoring, for the weekend, I'm going to do so much drugs, erectile, stimulants, downers, uppers. I'm going to end up in a coma and she's going to rush to my bedside. And before you know it, before I even leave the hospital, divorce will be taken away and I will be back with Chloe. Do you think that was the plan and was it ex- executed perfectly? Well, there was something going on. And he needed to get away, and that's why he went to the brothel to begin with, because of something going on. And then he did do coke before he went to the brothel on that Saturday before. Then he went there, and they picked him up and everything. And when he was there, um, it was, or they're saying now that the witnesses are saying that he did snort coke, mm. and there was pills that he was taking, which were not. Um, Viagra or anything that he had in his bag or in his pocket in a bag. So, um, and they said that there was a phone call that came in about the show that came that was on Sunday and it had to do with Lamar was calling Chloe on the show. So there was rumors that that had started it. So now do you think that this is something maybe I could get away with? I go to a whorehouse Spend all the money I have on an unlimited amount of time at the whorehouse, and then you will rush to my bedside and nurse me back to, back to health, and maybe it could be a way to bring the marriage together in some degree. Well, he said that he's sworn off drugs, and he really doesn't have any other family because like, his dad's an addict, and his best friend died a year ago from being an addict, and he does have some kids, though, um, and the divorce wasn't finalized. So where does it go from here? Do you think long term uh, will Lamar walk out of the hospital with Chloe at his side? Yes or no? Yes. Will they resume living together in a home and having a marriage together? Yes or no? Yes. Will that last more than one year? I don't know. What does your gut tell you? Maybe a couple of years. A couple of years. But you don't think they're destined to life together forever? Um... No. no. So now since Keeping Up with the Kardashians has been on, the athletes associated with the show have really not done well. Reggie Bush obviously won a Super Bowl with the Saints, but then his career kind of fell off a cliff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Humphreys didn't go well for him at all mm-hmm. being on there, right? Yep. And uh, obviously, Lamar Odom has been a wreck since he's been on the show. Uh, so what do you think it is about athletes and the Kardashians that is just a disaster? I don't know, but I thought the um, whatever his name is, the basketball player with the last name Harden with the big beard. 
Okay, yeah. I thought he was really good. He is really good. What does he have to do with anything? Because he was the guy that Chloe just broke up with. Oh, he was Chloe's second boyfriend. Yeah. So maybe Houston has to worry that Harden might drop off now that he's been poisoned by Kardashian dust. Maybe. How how would you rank the Kardashians? I mean, we'll include the, the younger ones. Rank them uh, from one to five in how uh, you view them as potential partners for men. Who is the most marriable Kardashian from one to five? Um, I'd say probably Kim. Is number one? Yes. Who's number two? The ranking means you go from one to five. Um, Chloe. Okay. Then? Um, Kendall. Wow, I'm, I'm shocked that Courtney is, is not, she seems like a good wife. A good mother, no? Um, she can't yeah. even get ahead of Kendall? Well, I don't know. Sometimes I think she can be a little bossy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think my instinct was correct. It's a bit of a bomb. Don't ask me What you know is true Don't have to tell you I love your precious heart I I was standing You were there 